Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. This past weekend saw the end of the Japan series, which went to a rare game seven, with the Hanshin Tigers beating the Oryx Buffaloes seven to one. On today's show, Dave Cortez will talk to our main baseball writer, Jason Coscree, and editor Joel Tanzi about what was seen as a pretty momentous victory for the Tigers. Jason's also going to explain to us what that curse of the colonel is. But before that, I'm speaking to politics reporter Gabriele Ninavaji about the Prime Minister's sinking approval ratings, despite the tax cuts that seem to be coming our way. Hi, Deep Dive listeners. So we recorded our chat with Gabriele on November 6, before he set out to cover the G7 foreign ministers meetup in Tokyo. In the meantime, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has said he will not hold a snap election this year. So that looks like it's going to settle the will he, won't he that we refer to in our chat. But you never know, in politics, nothing's impossible. Anyway, here's Gabriele. Hey, Gabriele. So I've recently been feeling the pinch of increased prices like everyone else in Japan. And I'm wanting to send cash back to Canada, but the yen is really low and I'm hoping that it can get back up at least a little bit higher so I can make some money on my remittances. Mm. And it seems like the government is trying to figure out a solution to this problem. But two weekends ago, while we all had our eyes on Shibuya Halloween, (laughs) Prime Minister Fumio Kishida received a different kind of scare, and Mm. that was his cabinet's approval rating. Right. So according to a poll by Nikkei and TV Tokyo, it hit 33%. It's the lowest it's gone since he took office two years ago. Uh, The cabinet's disapproval rating in the same poll rose by eight points to 59%, with survey takers citing poor policies and poor leadership as reasons for their disapproval. Then on Thursday, Kishida unveils this approximately 17 trillion yen economic stimulus package. That's around 113 billion US dollars. And? And this past weekend, after the announcement that you mentioned, uh, Kyoto poll put the cabinet's approval rate at at 28.3%. A considerable drop. Yeah, and that's the first time a Liberal Democratic Party government has fallen under 30% since 2009. Uh, when uh, the now-defunct Democratic Party of Japan defeated the LDP in a historical election. Mm. Are people not happy about this economic stimulus package, which, as we'll get into in a moment, includes a tax cut? Correct. So there seems to be this fundamental mistrust in the stimulus package's main centerpiece, the tax cut that Mm. you mentioned. Respondents to these polls have been saying that it's fiscally irresponsible and that it's just a way to sort of sweeten them up before uh, announcing a general election. Okay, like a vote-getting tactic. Right, well, let's lay out exactly what is in the stimulus package and when it's supposed to go into effect. Sure. So as you mentioned, the package is worth 17 trillion yen, and it mainly aims to counter the pace of steady inflation and falling wages. The main element is a temporary cut in uh, income and residence taxes per person from next June. So it's a 30,000 yen cut in income tax and a 10,000 yen cut in residency tax for a total of 40,000 yen. Correct. And there's also a plan to grant uh, 70,000 yen in payouts to low-income households, as well as extra subsidies for energy and utility bills. And those who don't earn enough to enjoy the advantages of the tax cut will benefit from some kind of additional support. But it's not clear what that is yet. Okay, so tax cuts and cash handouts. Um, This is a bit of an aside, but do people in Japan generally consider themselves to be taxed too much? I think it depends on who you ask. 
Um, Overall, people here are paying more taxes than they used to be in the past, but they're still paying less than some countries in Europe. The tax and social security system here is based on age and employment status. So uh, older people, because they're often earning less, uh, tend to pay less. While younger people, specifically those in so-called regular employment, tend to pay more but receive less benefits, to put it fairly simply. Uh, Young people might feel that they are uh, overtaxed as they don't really often make use of the country's subsidized medical services as much as older people do. Right, okay. On the other hand, with Japan's aging population, there is an ongoing debate over the necessity to adjust these uh, structural imbalances. And people who are older and have retired recently have been asked to pay more in tax, if they can afford it, obviously. So there seems to be this trend in Japan of asking those who can afford to pay more uh, to pay more, regardless of age. Okay. So back to the stimulus package, what kind of timeline are we looking at for this? So the government will submit a budget proposal later this month for discussion in the Diet, uh, which is the parliament, and presumably pass it before December 12th, before the ongoing session of the Diet's scheduled to end. And anyone who qualifies for subsidies will get those soon after the budget passes, but the tax cuts will come in June next year after a related law is submitted uh, early next year. Is there any chance the budget won't pass? Well, there have been some pretty deep disagreements within Kishida's own party, the Liberal Democratic Party, on this tax cut, but at the moment it's extremely unlikely that the budget won't pass the Dayan. The Prime Minister is obviously strongly advocating for it, uh, and the other day he told the news conference that, and I quote, Japan's economy is now on the brink of exiting from deflation. It would be more difficult to do so if we miss out this chance. I'm determined to boost disposable income in order to lead to expanded growth and create a virtuous cycle, unquote. So this virtuous cycle the prime minister mentioned there is a reference to the deflationary cycle that Japan has been stuck in for decades, yeah? Yeah. So deflation brings lower prices. And if I'm looking at the problems inflation is causing, don't we want lower prices? Well, we want to be able to afford Uh, goods and services. Uh, A deflationary uh, spiral might seem helpful, but uh, when price levels decline, that leads to lower production, reduced wages, decreased demand, and uh, continued price declines, uh, hence the spiral. So it's better to bring our wages up to afford higher prices than to bring prices down. Right, and deflation has negative effects on the economy at large. For example, in other countries, a deflationary cycle uh, can lead companies to cut costs by uh, laying off workers. But that's a bit hard to do in Japan because of strict labor laws. Uh, What has happened in Japan is that companies have refrained from investing in people, people's training, reskilling, which obviously leads to high productivity. And instead, they're sitting under profits. For a rainy day. For a rainy day. You know, In the past few years, we've actually been paying quite a bit in taxes, and Kishida himself is saying that he wants to, and I'll paraphrase him on this, uh, return the fruits of increased tax revenues uh, to the people. Okay, so Kishida's big hope is that he can juice the economy. Uh, Tax cuts and handouts are usually popular, but the prime minister's approval ratings are falling. You said earlier this is due to the fact that voters seem to think the cuts are fiscally irresponsible. Right. So while the budget is likely to pass, as I said, the Prime Minister has been facing a lot of opposition within his own party uh, from some, you know, pretty prominent and vocal politicians. But at the same time, also economists and the financial sector are are also concerned about a tax cut. And also influential media outlets are coming out against it. They don't think a tax cut is going to help. 
No, they don't. Um, increased spending and tax cuts are going to add to Japan's debt. Japan already has the highest debt among major economies, uh, 261% of gross domestic product in 2022. So they're worried about mounting debt. That's often a line we'll hear coming out of U.S. political narratives, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Though, you know, it's an issue every country is worried about. Uh, Japan is really no different in right. this. Okay. Yeah. The government has also already injected uh, hundreds of billions of yen into the economy since the pandemic, and things have been picking up slowly. Uh, so some people are arguing that this really isn't the time for another boost, uh, another stimulus. But inflation is what is causing the prime minister so many headaches, like it is in other countries. And this is because of the economic challenges of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the low yen, and so forth. So um, also for the majority of this year, Kishida has been in parliament uh, defending another one of his policies, uh, a tax hike. Oh, a tax hike? What? Yes, a tax hike. Uh, the tax cut is temporary. Uh, it's a sort of an effort to try and get the economy completely out of this deflationary spiral that I mentioned. But Kishida, long term, he wants to spend more money on defense and childcare. He was planning to raise corporate income and tobacco taxes as a way to pay for the increase in defense spending. But, you know, no politician wants to raise taxes. So the hike has been postponed until 2025. Mm. Additionally, the funding for his childcare policies is still uh, unclear. The prime minister has said repeatedly that he wants to conduct a spending review and avoid imposing an additional burden on citizens. But at the moment, it looks unclear as to whether or not he'll be able to do that. Okay, so the guy who's been talking about raising taxes has suddenly come out with a plan to cut taxes. Yes. Uh, so his whole thing was raising taxes, so much so that he got the nickname Zouze Megane, which kind of loosely translates as four-eyed tax hiker. Because <laughs> of his glasses? Yeah. <laughs> That's cold. So the four-eyed tax hiker, uh, their words, not mine, now wants to cut taxes. And I'm guessing the public isn't buying it. Mm. And that suspicion is what is turning up in his approval or disapproval ratings. Right. So the argument in Kishina's eyes is to cut taxes, boost the economy, keep momentum for wage hikes, uh, get people to a place where they can afford a tax hike, and then implement those tax hikes to pay for defense and childcare. Uh, this is a plan, obviously, and some people think it might work, and some don't. Uh, we won't know uh, until next year, I guess. <laughs> yeah. On paper, uh, a tax cut should be music uh, to voters' ears, especially at a time when everything seems to be getting more and more expensive. But there seems to be mixed messages on this, because you know, Kishida has been in power for a little more than two years now. And in that time, he hasn't really set forward a clear agenda for the country. It seems as though becoming prime minister was his goal and that was it. He has been tackling single issues one at a time as they arise, you know, the pandemic first and then uh, the war in Ukraine and then the Unification Church last year. But he has struggled to build a legacy for himself, especially in the domestic arena. Mm, so far, he's been pretty lucky and also skilled in a way, but that might not be enough uh, under current circumstances. Uh, at the moment, really, I think there are a few signs that his popularity is going to increase anytime soon. Hmm. So quick takeaway, tax cuts in June. Tax cuts in June. Okay. <laughs> Gabriele, thanks for coming on Deep Dive. Thanks for having me, guys. We'll be back after the break with Dave Cortez.
Hey, Dave. Hey, Sean. Over the weekend, there was big news in baseball. Um, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but you are, yeah? Yes, I am. And that big news in baseball happened in Osaka. So that was the sound of Honshin Tigers fans celebrating their team's victory on the famed Ebisubashi Bridge in Dotonbori on Sunday. This is like Osaka's equivalent to Shibuya Crossing, culturally speaking. I'm really showing my ignorance here. The Hanshin Tigers are Osaka's team? Technically, they're a Kansai team, but they're basically an Osaka team. Okay. And this past weekend, they played and defeated the Oryx Buffaloes, another Kansai team, in Game 7 of the 2023 Japan Series, which is Japan's professional baseball championship. Right. So for listeners who know American baseball, this is kind of like when the Red Sox or the Cubs broke their championship droughts. So it's a big deal for Tigers fans, and of course they celebrated on the bridge, several of them jumping into Dotonbori River, but most just partying and chanting into the night. And so for these fans, it had been decades of disappointment, and finally the drought, or the curse, came to an end. So to unpack all this drama and celebration, I spoke to Japan Times sports writer Jason Koskri, one of the best sports writers on Japanese baseball around, and our colleague Joel Tanzi, who lives in Osaka and took part in the celebrations as well. Jason, Joel, thanks for coming on Deep Dive. Thank you for having me again. Thanks for having me. So we have our work cut out for us today. We have a possible budding rivalry and even a curse to explain to the audience. But I guess a good place to start is to ask you both, since you guys went down there after the game, what was the scene like in Osaka's Dotonbori area when the Tigers won? Well, I didn't get there until about, it was after midnight, almost one o'clock after I finished up at Osaka Dome, Kyocera Dome. And there was still a bunch of police. There were a lot of people, a lot of fans there singing chance themes, all that. So mm-hmm. it was pretty, there's a lot of people down there still. It wasn't as crowded as some of the videos I saw. Okay. I didn't see anybody jump into the river, but there were still a lot of people there. What about you, Joel? What did you see? Yeah, I, I probably got there at about 10.30 and um, it was just just hordes and hordes of Hanshin Tigers fans just out celebrating. It was a very heavy police presence. So getting close to the Dotonbori River was actually um, quite challenging, even just to see it. They had a lot of barricades up. I know I saw some people online had managed to get in and jump in, which is always a you know a, a common celebration after a big Tigers win. But uh, I didn't see any of that. But yeah, just tons of fans out there, all cheering, all celebrating, um, having broken you know thirty eight years of frustration. Right on. So clearly, a lot of passion from the fan base and city. It sounds like. But uh, let's go back and have you guys set the stage, Joel. You quoted in one of your stories Trevor Reitschuda, founder of the Hanshin Tigers English news website and podcast, as saying that the Tigers are kind of like lovable losers in a sense. It's kind of like when you have a kid and your kid fails at something, you still can't stop loving them. They're cute even in defeat, right? So can you guys give me a quick rundown of the Hanshin Tigers' place in MPB history? You know, every sport has their own underdogs, but what is Hanshin's story? I would probably disagree with the lovable loser thing because I don't think the Tigers are that lovable. <laughs> okay. Like, no, not like Chicago Cubs where, where people would kind of root for them. I don't think Hanshin really has that because mm. Hanshin is just as much of a, a big team as the Yomiuri Giants. They're just as old almost. They're just as prestigious. They just didn't have the 
They don't have the wins. They don't have the pedigree that the Giants have. They're sort of the Red Sox to the Yomiuri's Yankees. The Giants have 22 Japan Series titles, and the Tigers won the pennant for the sixth time this year and the second Japan Series. So there's nothing underdog about the Tigers. They just don't do anything with the resources that they have. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's correct that this is not a small market team. They've got a lot of resources, so it's hard to call them underdogs. But I think from uh, Tiger's perspective, the fact that there hasn't been a lot of success over the years just makes you know those those few successes and that kind of you know chance to win win it all just all that much more important. Whereas a franchise like the Giants, you know, if you've been a Giants fan for 40, 50 years, you've seen however many championships. The, that winning feeling maybe just feels almost a bit uh, redundant at a certain point. And whereas the Tigers, you know, it's been it's been 38 years since they've been able to win a Japan series. So in the Kansai area, there is a feeling that they're, they're losers, but the fans love them anyways. I see. Well, Joel, can you maybe recall a specific moment or memory where you really thought, wow, it's really tough to be a Tigers fan? So I have to, you know, I have to put everything on the table here. I've only been a Tigers fan for about six years, and I kind of became a fan through marriage. <laughs> My wife is a, you know, grew up in Kansai, and her father-in-law is a huge Tigers fan. And of course, I want to get in on his uh, good side, so I'm not going <laughs> to cheer for another team. But it, you know, in that six-year period, I've seen kind of some ups and downs. I actually felt like last year they had a really good team. There's definitely been some disappointments. I haven't been around for as many of them as some of the fans that were letting loose in Dotombori the other night. So um, I feel like I'm kind of lucky to have joined and to already seen a championship when my father-in-law's been a fan his whole life and uh, he's seen two championships in, in his 60 years of watching the team. So. <laughs> for sure. What's the curse of the colonel? Well, the curse of the colonel was they were cursed supposedly by the the spirit of Colonel Sanders from <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> that started when, in 1985, the Tigers won the Central League pennant for the first time since 1964. Okay. So the fans celebrated as they are wont to do down by Dotumbori, by, by the Ebisu Bridge. And some people were jumping in that river, which is quite dirty. Right, right. So experts and doctors and people say, I think it was even dirtier back then, but... People jumped in, people who looked like the players would jump in, but they didn't have anyone who looked like Randy Bass, the American slugger from Oklahoma, who was the team's best player that year. Okay. So they improvised and they went and stole a statue of Colonel Sanders from outside of a KFC somewhere and, and chucked it into the river. Okay. <laughs> and um, they went on and won the Japan Series after that. That's a common misconception about this curse is that they won the Japan Series and then threw the statue in the river. They actually threw the statue in the river after they won the pennant. Mm. Then they won the Japan Series that year, and then things just went down. 1988, Randy Bass's son got sick. He left, and the team said he didn't have permission to leave, and it was kind of an acrimony split with him. And then they started finishing in last place a bunch, missing on draft picks, and just a lot of things were going wrong for the team. And mm. people started saying that it was the revenge of Colonel Sanders for the way they treated his statue. And so it kind of started getting called the curse of Colonel Sanders. And that's where that started was basically by them you know, throwing that into the river. And they didn't win the pennant again until 2003, which I guess technically would have ended the curse because the curse started with the pennant and they didn't win the pennant again. But some people believed it would last until they actually won the Japan series again, mm. which doesn't make that much sense since <laughs> they hadn't won it before then either. Right. But but the fans love a story, right? Yeah. And they won the Japan series that year that they threw him in. So right. I guess 
he let them have one and then right so maybe not exactly a curse but they did start kind of failing for decades after yeah. that right i guess it was a curse in the way of they didn't win the pennant again right they lost the japan series in seven games in 03 they got swept in 2005 they lost in five games in 2014 before they finally broke through and won this year well, that definitely helps explain what this means to fans, whether it was the curse broken this year or the last time they won the pennant. But uh, I do want to ask, though, at the start of this season, did anybody pick the Tigers to actually win the Japan Series? Was this expected? Well, in, in our paper, I picked them to win the pennant. All right. They were, I think, almost every pundit, not almost every, but a lot of people expected them to make it to the playoffs at least. I got to give big credit to Jason for for picking the Tigers to win it because even as a Tigers fan, you know, I thought maybe second or third was achievable this year, but um, I didn't expect them to to finish first. Gotcha. Well, uh, Kansai, the region that includes Osaka, Kyoto, and Kobe, was heavily represented in this matchup, as you guys know. So we have two teams who claim Osaka as their territory, the Hanshin Tigers in the Central League and their opponents, the Oryx Buffaloes in the Pacific League. And actually, the Buffaloes have been really good as of late. Jason, just before this series kicked off, you wrote an article titled Kansai Superiority at Stake in this year's Japan Series. So is there some kind of storied rivalry here? What's the significance of this series for Kansai? I think it was just the proximity of the two teams and the fact you have two Kansai teams playing for the first time Mm. in the Japan Series since 1964, which I think I mentioned earlier when it was Hanshin against the Nankai Hawks. Right. Um, No, I don't think there's any particular big rivalry because, for one, Oryx has only existed since 2005. Okay. And the two teams that merged to create the Buffaloes, the Oryx Blue Wave played in Kobe and Kintetsu Buffaloes. They both played in the Pacific League, so... Neither one of them played the Tigers that much. They never met in the Japan series, either one of those teams, when they both existed separately. No matter what the Buffaloes do, whether they won it this year or not, Osaka's the Tigers' town. That's that's just how it is. It's not like New York where there's this big, sizable population of people who like the Mets, and then there's a bunch of people who like the Yankees. Osaka is the Tigers' place. So what, why is Osaka the Tigers' place? Or for one, they've been there since 1936. Okay. So many people have grown up with Hanshin and cheering for the Hanshin Tigers. And it has a lot to do with their fan base. They have the most favorite, argent fan base in Japan. They're wild and rambunctious (laughs) and famous for all that. And there'd be more of a rivalry, I think, if the Buffaloes played at Kobe where the Blue Wave used to play. I think kind of one unique part about this is that, you know, last year when the Buffaloes were in the Japan series and the Tigers were not, the last two years, you know, the city I felt got behind the Buffaloes and a lot of Tigers fans were were very happy to see the Buffaloes have that success. Um, I don't think in MLB you would see that kind of same, you know, brotherly love between uh, the Mets and Yankees fans, for example. You know, I, I really did feel like Kansai got behind the Buffaloes as a kind of a second option with the Tigers out. Okay, so that leads me to the next question, I guess. We're going into the series with some kind of high drama laid out. You've got the Tigers curse, the Buffaloes winning recently, and whether or not there is a a rivalry or not, there's Kansai bragging rights on the line. And honestly, as a baseball fan, I just have to say, you know, what's not to love about that? It sounds like the, the stage was set, like I said. But in the end, uh, obviously the players have to go out and win the games. So I'll ask Jason. There's the Buffalo's pitching ace, Yoshinobu Yamamoto's presence in the series. You've written about that. But I'd like to hear about maybe some of the other standout performers and really how the series went in general. 
Well, how the series went in general, I think Yuma Mune for the Orcs Buffaloes had a really good series. He's the third baseman and he made some really good fielding plays. He had a key hit in game three that helped the Buffaloes win. He had another one in game four, although the Buffaloes ended up losing that game. He still helped put them ahead. Marwin Gonzalez, he also had a pretty good series. He had a home run. For the Tigers, um, Shota Morishita, the right fielder, the rookie, he had a really good series. He had about eight hits, drove in some runs, hmm. drove in the big two runs with a triple in game five. Koji Chikamoto had like hits all over the place. He had finished with like a 14 hits. He had three three-hit games in the Japan series and had four hits in game seven. He was also really good. And um, Koyo Aoyagi, the pitcher for the Tigers, kind of, Kind of a gutsy performance in Game 7, coming in, having not pitched since September 29th and giving them what he gave them on the mound. So those guys, I think, really stood out for the teams in the series. And how did Yamamoto do? He's kind of the star player for the Buffaloes. He got rocked in the first game. He gave up <laughs> seven runs, which is the most the most earned runs he's given up in his career, and he, and he lost in, in a way that turned the series because Oryx was probably expecting to win that game and then hope they could win game two with Hiroya Miyagi. Mm. And so when, when Yamamoto got rocked, it was just a shock. And then he came back in game six when the Buffaloes needed to win and struck out 14 and threw a 138-pitch complete game and just showed everyone why he's going to be like one of the top free agents on the MLB market because the Buffaloes already announced that they're going to post him. Okay. So he kind of he had an up-and-down series. He started off really bad and ended it with one of the best games you'll see in a Japan series. Right on. I also remember you tweeting about Sheldon Noisy's performance in the series. Was he good throughout the series, or did he just help the Tigers bring it home in the end? Sheldon Noisy made his fair share of plays in game one through five in left field that I think probably got overlooked by a lot of people, but he made some plays that helped them prevent runs, and Mm. that's what the Tigers excelled at was preventing runs, and he was a part of that. Mm. So he had a pretty solid one through five. Then he hit the home run. The only run that Yamamoto gave up in game six was Noisy hitting a home run. And then he comes back in game seven and hits a home run off Hiroya Miyagi, who's the Oryx's second best pitcher. So after hitting 240 with only nine home runs in a regular season, he hits two back-to-back games off the two best pitchers that Oryx has. Two guys who were both on the World Baseball Classic team. And that second one against Miyagi pretty much helped the Tigers clinch the series. All right, that's cool. And you mentioned the World Baseball Classic, which is where I think a lot of casual baseball fans have heard Yamamoto's name for the first time this year because he was so dominant in that series, which Japan won. And so it will be interesting to see how he does if and when he gets a chance to pitch in Major League Baseball. And the other thing I want to mention is if you haven't picked up on it already, baseball championships are played as a series. Usually it's best of seven, so first team to win four. And this series went to game seven. And as Jason mentioned, Yamamoto didn't do very well in the first game, which means the Tigers won. But to get to game seven, obviously there has to be some kind of heroics from each team to push it all the way to the final possible game. So what is the kind of significance of the two teams taking it all the way to game seven? Well, game seven... Obviously, it's a decisive game, and there hasn't been a real Game 7 in the Japan Series since 2013 when the Giants and the Tokarokten Golden Eagles faced each other. So um, you don't get Game 7 that often. You don't get it that often where the championship is guaranteed to be decided by whoever wins or loses that day. So I think it was pretty significant that it got that far. It's fitting for two teams who are kind of equal, too. Hmm. I'd like to put a question to Jason. Um 
my father-in-law, you know, after game seven, just went back and forth on who the MVP of the Tigers was. And there was just, there was so many kind of standouts, but also, you know, very few kind of really consistent performers. So who would you pick as, as the Tigers top player in that series? Oh, it's Chikamoto. Easy. Chikamoto was the most consistent player on either team. He had three hits twice, four hits once, and then he had a hit. He had a hit in every game except game two. And he's a Tigers outfielder? He's a Tigers center fielder, and mm-hmm. he also was pretty good in center field as well. So I think it was pretty easily Chikamoto. After that, um, that's a great question. I think um, Sayakinami, the shortstop, also had a pretty decent series, and he was pretty consistent. Chikamoto had 14 hits. Kinami had 10. I think they had some, they had some guys who could have won MVP, but I think Chikamoto, who actually did win MVP, was the clear choice. Right. So I guess I'll say congratulations to Joel as a Tigers fan and ask you to maybe share with the audience what it means to you to finally see them win it all after so long. Yeah, like I said, I haven't been a fan for too long. I'm not going to portray myself as some long-suffering Tigers fan because this is like year six, I guess, of mm. this of this journey, if you will. But to know what it meant for everyone else who had been waiting that long, and you know, my father-in-law had tears in his eyes as as the, we got the final outs, and just to see that kind of emotion and passion, and uh, kind of unleashed in various ways. Some people had a had a cry and went to bed at home. You know, other people felt the need to go down to the Namba area and perhaps even jump in the river. So I I just felt that to see what it meant to the city and the region and. Uh, Everyone still, I think, is still kind of on a high a few days later from that championship. Gotcha. Okay, one last question while I have you both. Where does Shohei Otani play next year? In L.A. with the Dodgers. With the Dodgers? Yep. Joel, do you have a speculative answer? Uh, just, I was going to say the Dodgers. Okay. I guess to be different, I'll, I'll say that maybe the Mets will throw just a ton of money at him and he'll play with Kodai Senga. I don't know. Right on. Well, let's see how it shakes out. Anyway, thank you guys for coming on Deep Dive and explaining the ins and outs of this to our audience. It was nice talking to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. So the Dodgers. Yeah, I thought they'd hedge a bit more, but they (laughs) seemed pretty sure about it. I mean, I don't know a lot about baseball, but I know to trust Jason. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, thanks to both Jason and Joel for joining the conversation this week. And thanks to Gabriele, too. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, as mentioned at the top of the show, the group of seven foreign ministers have been meeting in Tokyo. That's being chaired by Japan's top diplomat, Yoko Kamikawa, who announced the results of the meet on Wednesday. The group called for humanitarian pauses in fighting between Israel and Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip. They also called for support for civilians and access for humanitarian workers, but the statement didn't call for a ceasefire nor explicitly condemn Israel's warfare in Gaza. Kamakawa added that the discussion was heated at times, extremely frank and unreserved. G7 nations also expressed support for Japan's decision to release treated water into the Pacific Ocean from the wrecked Fukushima No. 1 nuclear power plant, with the group calling the release safe, transparent, and science-based. And on that, Japan began releasing a third batch of treated radioactive water from the wrecked Fukushima No. 1 nuclear plant on November 2nd. The operator, TEPCO, said after finishing inspections following its second release, which concluded on October 23rd, that it had found no reason to alter procedures. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez, our outro music is by Oscar Boyd, and the theme music is from the artist 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama.